the Trent, the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and dell I pin the tail. Death throw the penalty ID, throwing identity, theft crime in the night, pick, pop, key the lock, stop, drop, roll the dice, double double dough, eat the rock road, crochambo, tic tac toe, crossing a roll with the nice flow with my industry, see me room roof living off believe with my commodities, stop the eyes and cross the teeth. How do you do, Venters? My chief purpose of this podcast is to have meaningful conversations with significant individuals whom I have connected with along the way. As my daughter says in the intro, we will dot all the I's and cross all the T's to prove that questions are the answers while finding out what these significant people ultimately vent about. We don't need another episode. Says whom? Whomever said that and meant it will be terribly sorry. I am not saying this to be cocky. I'm saying this because my guest, Coach Jim Herrick, is, in a word, captivating. Coach Herrick is the last coach to lead UCLA basketball to a national championship in 1995. That was UCLA's 11th championship following the 10 won by his mentor and good friend, iconic coach John Wooden. Coach Herrick prides himself on being a teacher first and foremost. And can I tell you, did he school me during our sit down? I'm happy to pass this knowledge on to you and I think you'll all agree that Coach Herrick's teachings are not the only way to teach, it's just the best way. Okay, well, thank you, Coach, for joining me today on Vent with Trent the Gent, and it's a pleasure to, to be with you today. So how, well, how, how my, are you doing? It's my pleasure. Nice to be with you. Great. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, tell me a little bit about your parents and what they did and um, the different things that they instilled in you I as a kid. I was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia, and... Uh, my mother always worked. She was a tremendous influence in the life. She was a, she was a tough, hard-nosed lady that, uh, that worked all the time. My dad was kind of an entrepreneur. He, he did a whole bunch of different things. Uh, but we had a nice household, just my sister and I and, and uh, my two parents. Uh, but they were lovingly parents. We didn't have a lot. There were times we didn't have much at all, and then, but uh, we never owned it. They never owned our home. We rent. They rented their whole life, and uh, probably their only great possession was a car. My dad had an eighth-grade education. My grandmother graduated from high school. My dad's parents came from Lebanon. Uh, my mother's parents came from Lebanon. None of them, not, four grandparents never spoke English. None of them. And but my parents were born here, and uh, of course they never really valued knew the value of an education. I think I was the first one in the whole family to ever graduate from college, and uh, so. But we had a good. It, it was good. I uh, you know never had a lot of money, never took a lot of trips and you know if we'd go out to eat as a family that was really a treat 
but it was different times in those days. I mean, uh, there weren't a lot of rich people. There were some, but not very many. And everybody was hardworking. And you know, West Virginia is a blue-collar state, blue, and a lot of a lot of hardworking people. You know, uh, we live in a city, but it's more of a mining state than anything. And so it was good. I played athletics all my life, and that kept me busy. And I uh, graduated from college. I met my wife. Uh, she was eighth grader. I was a ninth grader, and we dated for all through high school and all through college. Wow. And then I graduated from college and worked that summer and got married in August and got in a car and drove cross country. There you go. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you this story. I, I, I was walking down the hall, and uh, my cousin had come to visit me, and he had just moved out here. He and his mother and dad got a divorce, so his mother's family was out here, so she moved out here. They were all from West Virginia, but they had migrated out here. And he came back after he graduated from high school, and I was going into my senior year, and he said, oh, California, oh, you know, he went on and on and on about California. And, and uh, so I put kind of put that in my mind. I was walking down the hall one day, I went to Placement Bureau, and, and they had a job in California, I applied for it and got it. Wow. And I was just teaching junior high school. And uh, that's kind of how it started. I drove into Los Angeles and knew nobody, and 28 years later, I'm the head basketball coach at UCLA. What a country we live in. That is what a great a country. country. Yeah. So let's rewind a, a little bit, and then we'll catch up yeah. to all of that. So if your parents didn't really value education, how did you know that you wanted to go to college and to be the first one in the family to, to do that? Well, I just, you know, I just watched everybody I knew and saw that, that if you got a college degree, you had a much better opportunity in life. And, and uh, I had the opportunity to go. Uh, school was right there in my town. And so I just kind of, it's kind of like my golf game. You know, I just grinded through and grinded through. And I got through in four years. And, and finally, my junior year, I met a great teacher who really motivated me and and I really liked him, and my grades improved, and, and uh, I finally got a degree. I really wanted to be a speech therapist, and I wanted to go to graduate school, but I got married, <laughs> and uh, we moved out here. That teacher, what, what was his style? What, what was it about him that motivate, motivated you? Well, he, was, uh, he, he, he kept after you and badging you to bring out the best in you. And, and my subject was this? And, uh, well, he was a physical education teacher, okay. but he caught kinesiology. And uh, it turned out to be my favorite class. And I think I got a B in it or something. And I and, uh, really loved it and, and, and saw the value of, you know, what you want to do. And, and uh, you know, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a salesman or I wanted to be whatever. And I got a job as a teacher, so I took it. So growing up in West Virginia and going to high school in West Virginia, it may not be true, but I heard that in high school when you played basketball, you played versus Jerry West. Is, is that true? Jerry and I are from the same hometown. He was from 20 miles uh, from Charleston, West Virginia, is East Bank, West Virginia a little community called Cabin Creek, and Jerry was from there, and we started playing in the seventh grade against each other, junior high basketball. 
we all we all had teams so seventh eighth and ninth grade uh, but we were big. I was in the city, and we were a lot bigger than them, and we always beat them. I mean, beat them all down. Now you start hearing about this guy, and, and as a 10th grader, he was pretty good, but he broke his leg and missed all his junior year. Hmm. And so everybody knew he was pretty good. You know, he's skinny as could be, and, and he couldn't dominate. And then I remember our senior year, we opened the, se- we opened the conference season at home against them. We beat him 64-62. He always watched me, and I always watched him. And as we went through the year, we're in first place, and they're chasing us all the time. Now, we haven't gone back up there. Now it's late February, and almost one or two games before the season's over. And we go back up there, and I'm going to tell you, you go up, and you're talking about going up the uh, something you don't ever understand. <laughs> we're going up the holla. You don't know what a holler is. I have no idea a what that is. A holler is an area between two mountains. You're going up the holler. You go up the holler, you get a beer and a beating up there, boy. <laughs> Woo! They throw rocks at your butt. I mean, it was it was wild. We went up there, and, and you know, it was a little short court, and he, he laid 46 on me, and he was just, I mean, he had just finally matured and developed, and they just blew through the state tournament, and he was just a monster after that. So you, we were so you had to stick them. You, when you say he laid it on you, you, you were he guarding was him. He guarding me, yeah. Wow. And then two years later, uh, we have a summer league, an outdoor summer league, and, and uh, uh, the businesses in town would draft players, college players, and they'd go up there. And they'd, we'd draw two, 3,000 people outside. And Jerry and I happened to be on the same team, Blossom mm. Dairy. And I went back to college each year thinking, boy, I'm really good. I am really good because playing with him made you really good. I mean, I played a higher level than I ever played in my life playing with him because he was such a great player. It was unbelievable how you focus and how you concentrate and how much better you were. And then he left for the 1960 Olympics in Rome with Oscar Robertson and Pete Newell was the coach. And I got in my car, got married, got in my car and drove cross country, started and, teaching school. Uh, <laughs> on, on to California. So you mentioned the Olympics. Obviously, that's going on right now. How, what would you prefer? Would you prefer when it was collegiate students playing in the Olympics, or do you like the fact that now we have professionals oh, represented? I prefer collegiate uh, amateurs playing. And that's the pros don't want to play in that. The pro management don't want, the general manager, and pro, they don't want their players playing in that. And uh, uh, if we all had, if we had amateurs, it would be so much, it was so much more competitive and so much better. I, I totally agree. So it sounds like basketball was your best sport. Would, would you say that basketball was your best sport? And if not, what was? Absolutely. No, no. Basketball was my best sport. I was a high quarterback in high school on the, uh, on the football team and played a little bit of baseball and, and faced a guy through about 90 miles an hour with a sharp curve. And I said, that's enough for me. <laughs> but uh, basketball, yeah. And I ended up playing a little bit in college. I was went to a D2 school and, you know, and I really, quite honestly, I sat on the bench. Hmm. And, and you know what? 
that made me so much better coach because I understood what it was like for a guy to come into my school who was a star in high school and sit on the bench. Because I thought I was, you know, I always tell the joke at the banquets and everything, the player thinks he's Michael Jordan, but the parents think he's better. <laughs> and I always thought of that, you know, as I coached. It really helped me tremendously because it's a humbling, humbling experience. I've cried before. Cried when I didn't play sometimes because I thought I was better than, you know, I thought I was better than everybody else. And I come out here and, and, and you know, I followed a whole different story. I followed Coach Wooden and, and you know, a guy like, there's a guy named Andy Hill that played at UCLA and he ended up being a big uh, television producer, uh, produced that, that TV series about heaven and uh, the angels. And, and anyway, he did not speak to Coach Wooden for 25 years. And I understand why. Because he didn't I play him? The, huh? Because he, didn't, he play didn't play. He was a big star and he didn't make the young. And I understand it, but he went back and, and realized after he hit a certain age that how much he learned from the coach, et cetera. So, so that was a great experience for me. So we always hear that being bench is the best teacher, so to speak. So was it in that moment when you were sitting on the bench that you realized that you really understood the game of basketball? I understood the, I, I, I coached every minute of, as a player, but I also learned to be a good teammate because he, that SOB wasn't playing me. That doesn't mean I can't cheer for you and be your best friend and help you at practice and work with you and help try to make you better so we can make our, I learned all that stuff. And maybe if I was a star, uh, I wouldn't have learned that, you know? And, and, and I look around and, and, and I watch Magic Johnson and Jerry West and Larry Bird. And these guys weren't great coaches. Bill Russell, they weren't great coaches. Why is that? Why are, yeah, why are the great ones I rarely? I don't know the answer to that. But I look around in the NBA today and I don't see a great, great, help me now, I don't see a great, great player that was, is a good coach. Maybe Doc Rivers was the best player that's a coach right now. Probably. Popovich never even played in the NBA and he might be the best coach in the NBA. George Carl was a was a journeyman, got a, got a cup of coffee, but he turned out to be a great, great coach in the league. Now, Red Arbach never played in the league. Phil Jackson sat on the bench with the New York Knicks. So, it's funny. I mean, yeah, I is. remember Jerry, I remember Jerry Buss said, well, Pat Riley and Jerry West are gonna be the coaches. Here they are. Jerry got up there and said, I am not gonna coach this team. That was crazy. Magic lasted three games. I mean, <laughs> so their expectations are like theirs probably, and my expectations were probably like mine. I don't know the answer to that, but, but I know it helped me. How, let's talk a little bit about Morningside, and obviously you, you drove to, to California. How did you end up at Morningside High School? I came out here and I, my first year I coached at a little junior high in Smith River, California, which is right outside Crescent City. 
and our, our, our school district went to the Oregon border. I was one year there and it rained 127 inches that year. We moved down here and I coached at Hawthorne Intermediate School and I got with a bunch of guys and we went back to, we went to SC and got our masters. And I stopped getting my masters when I learned that you need five years in California to teach high school. So I went back and got my credential, my fifth year credential at UCLA Extension while I'm going to SC graduate school. <laughs> nice. And I worked three years at Hawthorne Intermediate School and I was playing basketball almost every night in the industrial league, you know, leagues around. And I met the Morningside High School basketball coach, Lee Smelser. And we hit it off and became great friends and he, he recommended me the principal and they end up hiring me at Morningside High School as an English teacher, junior varsity basketball and junior varsity baseball. So at that time, this was your truly, at least for high school, your first coaching gig. My how did you learn to judge talent? How, how, how does one do that? Well, I think probably from my standpoint, it's experience. You know, you took the players you had, it wasn't any recruiting or anything in those days. And it's funny, I went to Morningside High School and they were 0-10 in league the year before I got there. And we started opening the gym Tuesday and Thursday night because I lived right in the area. And, and uh, we started getting our kids to come in and play and play and play. And then we had a, a different influx of players. We had... Uh, my first year on my first JV team was was uh, Kevin Love's dad, Stan Love. We played about three games for me, and we moved him up to varsity. And we had we had some spectacular years with him. Five straight years, we were really really pretty good. And then Lee Smelser got the College of the Canyons job out in Valencia, out by. Magic Mountain, mm -hmm. and I became the head basketball coach at Morningside High School in 1969. Wow. So, were you more, as far as judging the talent, and, and I know back then we didn't talk a lot about analytics, but so back then and even to now, are you more of an eyeball test? guy as far as judging talent or do you believe analytics Chris, plays a, a big part of this? I started Morningside High School in 1964 it was the first year John Wooden won the first national championship and I started going to all his clinics and and going to his and we used to go up watching practice and I just loved the way they played so I started adopting all of John Wooden's uh, system Thank you, John Robert Wooden, for what I call the Wooden system, not the only way to play basketball, just the best. And in 1969, I got my job, and I'm going to run their offense. I'm going to run all their drills. My fifth game as a coach, we're out in the Valley playing. I look around, and four rows back of me is John Wooden. He just won his seventh national championship. He's watching me coach my fifth game as a head basketball coach. And he came down, and, and from then on, he knew my name and always knew it, and, and we became really, really good friends. And then next summer, I became the director of the John Wooden basketball camp. But to answer your question, I learned from Coach Wooden to recruit quickness 
with as much size as possible, your ability to shoot the ball, and then we want to look at your character. Are you coachable? Will you, will you, will you buy into what we're doing and you try to learn as much about a kid as you can because character really does win for you. So you mentioned the ability to shoot the ball. And I know when um, I coached the, the, the youth teams of my sons that they played on, I always like to share with them just the size of the rim is big enough for two basketball side by side to, to fit in um, at the same time. And they're always so amazed with that. So if, if that's the case and you're looking for individuals that can shoot, why is it so hard to get one ball in that darn hoop, not even 50% of the time? Well, uh, you know, athletics is a humbling game. It, uh, it, uh, some guys can shoot the ball, and I've had some just great, great, great shooters. McLean and Don McLean and Tracy Murray were just fabulous shooters for me at, at UCLA. I had a kid named Dane Suttle at Pepperdine and, and had a kid in high school that could really shoot it. And so... Uh, being able to shoot the ball uh, and put the ball in the basket uh, covers a lot of deficiencies. When you can't score, your team looks horrible. If you can score and can't guard anybody, nobody will know it. Very few will know it. But if you can't score, everybody knows it. And, uh, you know, you, you got, I learned in fourth grade, you got to put the ball in the basket. And you hopefully you can try to stop the other guy and put the ball in the basket. And that's, that's uh, blocking and tackling in basketball. You know, really it's a simple game. Uh, I've always defined it, you got to play offense from the top of the key of the baseline. You got to play defense from the top of the key of the baseline. You got to rebound the ball. You cannot turn it over. And you got to play hard. And you show me a team that doesn't turn it over, and I'll show you a team that's pretty hard to beat. And... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of coaches, it's a simple game, but coaches make it complex. All right, so two things. So before we get back to the, to the coaches, so on that list of criteria that you need to, to be a good team, you didn't mention free throws. How important are free throws? And once again, why well, is it about, so difficult to... We're talking about offense now. And free throws are 25% of the game of basketball. But in March... and during the tournaments is 33% of the game of basketball because you're talking about pressure. Step on the line down one and you got a, you know, you got a one-shot foul. That's a tough, tough, tough situation. Uh, we, uh, my second year at UCLA, we were playing Kansas in the, in the a second round of the NCAA tournament in Atlanta and they were a two seed and we're a seven seed and Tracy Murray goes to the line, and, and we're down one. And uh, he's a great shooter. And he hit the rim, backboard bounced in, and switched the second one, and we went on and won the game. And the same thing, uh, we're playing Kentucky in the Wooden Classic, and we're down one with .6 seconds to go. And they foul J.R. Henderson, he's got two shots. And he's not a great foul shooter. But he was when you needed him. He stepped up there and made two, and we won. And, but I'm ahead of North Carolina State 
We're, in, we're ahead six with a ball in the first overtime in 1983 when they went on and won a national championship with Jimmy Valvano. We're ahead six with a ball in, in overtime. And we missed the front end of a one-on-one, missed the front end of a one-on-one, and get, get in second overtime and get beat. So, you know, you hope that in your career everything balances out. And I still think they owe me, but <laughs> <laughs> that's my personal feeling. So the fact that most players don't shoot a high percentage of free throws, is that because of lack of practice? And I know we always talk about Rick Barry and the underhand free throw. Why do you think players are afraid to try that method if it's so effective? Well, I'd say it, DeAndre Jordan, Andre Drummond should probably try it because it probably worked for them. But uh, uh, it just, it's not in, it's not in to do that. It's just not in. Uh, that's the only thing I can answer because it's certainly a creative way. And when I was growing up, a lot of guys shot that way. But it, Rick Barry's the only one that, that continued with it, and it worked for him. What a, you know, uh, foul shooting's like putting. It's a, it's a continuous motion. You can't move your head. You can't, you know, you got to be still, and, and, uh, and you got to have a good touch. And, you know, sometimes you're the hammer, and sometimes you're the nail. That's just the way, you know, that's the way all athletics are. I was watching the Olympics the other night. Here's a guy from some country where he worked four years. Four years of his life. He busted. His, and he got in the Olympics. He run a 100-yard dash. And he false starts. He's eliminated. I mean, you got to be kidding. Talk about humbling. Yeah. But it's humbling. It's a, it's a, it's a humbling, humbling Sports is a humbling area. That's why sports is so good, because it teaches you so many things. It teaches you to get knocked down and get back up. It teaches you to be a good, good teammate, a good, you know, a good company man. You got to buy in. You got to take orders. Things have to go bad, and, and you have to, you know, bounce back from it. And you're going to miss a layup. You're going to miss a foul shot that cost your team a game. And how are you going to react to it? And all those things are life-learning lessons. That's why sports is so good. Yeah, I always go back to when I graduated from college and just looking for jobs out there. And, and one of the questions would always be, do you play sports? And I would always scratch my head like, what does that have to do with anything? I just want, I just want a job. Mm -hmm. But after um, thinking about it, it's all the things that, that you said, and yeah, it just it makes you a, a great company man. I've segued into motivational speaking and speak to a lot of companies and corporations, and I'm my first opening comment. You are the head coach of your team. And then I go into all these other, you know, uh, uh, how you how you, you know, how you treat people and people, some people like, you know, people like wheelbarrows. Some people like wheelbarrows, they need to be pushed. Some are like canoes, you have to paddle them. Some are like balloons, you have to keep them on a string or else they'll fly away. Some are like footballs, you never know which way they're going to bounce. Some are like neon lights, they flash on and off. But there are others who are like good watches, open face, pure gold, quietly busy and full of good works. Where do you fall into that line? 
So a company is no different than being a head coach of a team. Let's go back to coaching and you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, I forget exactly what you said, but coaches or players, what makes, what's more important to the team? Is it, is it the coach or do you have to have the right oh, personnel? No, no. You gotta have great players. You gotta have great players. Show me a good coach with bad players. I'll show you a guy gets his brains beat out every night. So number one thing you need in athletics is talent players. The number two thing, you need to put them in a position that can help your team win, and that's where coaching comes in. But coaching is second. If you don't have the talent, you're not going to win games. I don't care who you are. Malcolm Gladwell, you're the, the author, I'm sure you're familiar with him, wrote Outliers. And he's, he focuses or he, he talked about like basketball, for example, they focus on the strong link. So the best player, the phenom, the best player on the team, that's the person that they normally focus on. Unlike soccer teams, they focus on the weak link. They want to make sure that all, everyone on that field is capable of making the proper pass because they realize that that one pass will destroy everything. So what was your philosophy? Are you a strong link coach or a weak link coach no I'm a team coach I want to be good in every aspect of the game every aspect of everything I want my I want my reserves to be good I give them a chance to play uh, I just uh, you know I don't want people to say well he's a good offensive coach or he's a good defense. I'm a good coach I want to be a good coach that covers every single base and uh, uh, you know, I learned from Coach Wooden the, the, the value of fundamentals and, and uh, doing it properly and playing the proper, the correct way. And, and uh, that's how I've done it my whole life. The motivational speaking, and I saw that you have the, the five C's, right, that you talk about. And, and one of them is costume. So this is probably self-serving being the, the custom clothier that I am. But why did you make costume in being able to present yourself? Why did you make that one of the C's? One of the C's costume, and I define it as you dress to your success, but I'm not really talking about dress. In certain respects, I am, because clothes do make the man, and I, 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 that's true. But I'm what I'm really talking about is your pride. Uh, I think that if you're going to be good at anything, you have to have insatiable pride to look nice, to act nice, to speak nice, to treat people nicely, to put success in your body, success will come out of your body, to put garbage in your body, garbage will come out of your body. How you treat people, uh, all that is the pride, how your office looks, how, you're, how, how you present yourself. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. All those things come under the title of costume. You dress to your success. 
and also added to that is being positive. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing how a person's hearing improves when he hears praise. And you praise him, praise him, praise him. Your, your employees, you get more with honey than you do vinegar. Reprimand, yes, followed by praise. Taking, and I learned this from John Wood, and taking no, not, and never out of my vocabulary when I, on the floor. If I could scream, I would scream, here at UCLA, we want it done this way, is a positive statement. Son, to err is human, to make the same mistake over and over is embarrassing, is a positive statement because there's no negatives in it. Once I say, no, don't do that, you'll see a young player Chin go right down on his chest, and he puts his head down when you use a negative. And I learned that from Coach Wooden. It's a great, powerful, powerful thing that you use on him. It took me years to, to, to master that. Is that only on the court, or is that just across well, the Well, I try to do it across. I tried to do it with my children, but they had grown a little <laughs> bit, and I didn't know all that then. You know, experience is a great, great, great teacher. Talking about experience, and I hopefully we can touch upon this, but from experience, um, back in the day, we know that collegiate players could not accept anything, even in, of, of a meal given to them. Um, relative to those types of regulations today in college, has how has it changed? Um, do, do you feel that they, they should be giving certain certain things, certain per, I mean, I guess they probably get a per diem, but how, what, what do you very, think about those very, regulations? Very, very difficult question to, to, to wrap yourself around, and, and I don't know anybody can do it. In my basic opinion, football and basketball players need to be compensated, absolutely, with a stipend. However, how are you going to do that? to the swimmers, to the tennis players, to the water polo, to the golfers, et cetera, who don't make any money, but, uh, you know, are, you fund their programs. Uh, uh, so I just don't know the answer to that. Although they, we, the, there's been so much complaints that they have loosened the strings a little bit. You know, we're, they'll have some things at night that kids can eat, and et cetera. And, it's gotten better, but certainly it's not anywhere uh, great, but it's gotten a lot better. Yeah, well, that's good to know that it at least has gotten better o over the years. Let's talk about some of the, the, the phenoms that you have coached over the years, be it if it's Don McLean, Tracy Murray, Lamar Odom. How was it like, or, or what is it like when you're in their parents' living room trying to recruit them and to, to get them to, to play for you? And what do you have to instill in these parents to make them feel that I'll you are the, the, the well, correct Well, I'll tell coach? you a story. Uh, I went into Kevin Ollie's house, who went to Crenshaw High School, 15 minutes from UCLA. And, and you know, there's it's not anything written, but Marcus Johnson went there and came to UCLA. But Crenshaw's kind of like a sister school to UCLA. I mean, you, you got to be kidding. Willie West was there, and he won nine million championships and was a great, great coach. 
And so I go into Kevin Ollie's house and I lay out all my stuff, you know, and I present this, you know, and then finally at the end he says, well, Coach, I'm going to have 10 schools in. I said, well, Kevin, we're, we're UCLA. We're right here, you know. He said, no, I'm going to have. And then at the end of those 10 schools, he said, I'm going to pick five. So you're telling me that I'm not even guaranteed a visit. He said, no, not yet, he says. But uh, so he was nice. It was good. But the next night, I went into Tyus Edney's home, and I lay out all my stuff, and Tyus and his father, Hank, stood up on the couch, put their hand up, said, whoa, coach, whoa, stop. And I looked at him, and they said, you don't understand. We want to come. <laughs> That's a powerful message for a kid that really, really wants to come. Am I in your home and you really want to come? Now, I better make the right decision on what homes I go into. And I, you know, I don't want to go into a home and, and I've done it before and said, well, maybe I'm not going to give you a scholarship. Maybe. I made that mistake with, with Austin Crozier and I lost him to Providence and he played about nine years in the NBA. And uh, so, you know, you make mistakes like that. and. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you just go in. I, I really felt I had an advantage at UCLA with Southern California kids. I was dynamite as a recruiter to Southern California kids because, you know, I'm coming to you and, I, you know, I, I'm talking to you as a young child or a student athlete and I'm saying, you know, tell me who loves you the most. He said, well, my mom and dad love me the most. I said, Really? Yeah. I said, well, why wouldn't you want to share the God-given talent you've been given with the people that love you the most? They're alive. They love. You don't have any idea how they'd feel walking in Polly Pavilion to watch you play. Powerful message. So I was good with Southern California kids, and I, but I'm a product of the Southern California High School Coaches Association. I'm in their Hall of Fame. And I'm favorable to Southern California players. So I concentrated mostly on Southern California players. Now, I lose Cherokee Parks to Duke, so I go to Czechoslovakia and get George Zedek. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to do what you have to do. But I had Cameron Dollar. Uh, I recruited a kid, a great shooter out of, out of Maryland, and, and uh, we watched him play. And we needed a backup point guard to, to Cameron Dollar or to Tyus Edney, so we took Cameron Dollar. And I found myself almost every game, he's in, the, he's in at the end of the game, almost every game we played. And uh, so those are just several guys, but, but most, you know, you look at my teams were uh, uh, Don McLean and Derek Martin, and then Mitchell Butler, Tracy Murray, uh, and then we go to, then we go to Edney and the McLean, uh, O'Bannon and O'Bannon and J.R. Henderson and Toby Bailey. And uh, so I, I really favored Southern California kids. Tyus Edney, obviously we all remember the coast-to-coast -coast shot in, in, in the tournament to make you guys advance. Describe what it was like in the locker room that night after that? It was funny. We came in the locker room and sat down, and, and uh, I had been really upset the night before. We played Florida International, 
and we beat them badly, and everybody played. I'm watching a little bit of the tape. I didn't watch much, but I did watch a little bit. And I, they flashed to the bench, and there's three or four guys horsing around, crossing their legs, you know, together, and laughing and joking. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's not right. So we barely get by Missouri, and I was really upset. I mean, uh, you have to coach to understand. Immediately after, I'm, I'm, I'm visibly upset. But I don't show it. I walk in the locker room. We sit down and said, fellas, we dodged a bullet. Let's go home. So we went back home, and that was Saturday. And so I gave them Sunday and Monday off. And Tuesday, I'm not on the floor. They're out there shooting around, looking around for me. I'm not there. So the manager comes out and says, Coach wants you in the locker room. Well, I, I, don't, I never get on my players. I don't get on them. I get on them when we win, mm -hmm. not when we lose. And I'm different. I'm different. That's just the way I am. When, I, when we win, I'm on you hard. Not, 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 you know, not outwardly, but I'm on you. I'm challenging you. I'm on you. When we lose, I'm, I'm your best friend. I got my arm around you, patting you. And a lot of people say it's the other way. When you lose, why don't you run them? Why don't you punish them? But I'm not that way. Uh, punish them when we win, not when we lose. But I was so upset at those guys horsing around at the NCAA tournament because we got our brains beat out the year before. And so I'm nervous. So they walk in the locker room. I got the chairs set around all in a semicircle. Now I got cards. I've practiced this the whole weekend. I got every kid down and everything I want to say about him, I got it memorized. And I started, and they'd never seen me like this before, ever. I'm a raging maniac. Going, I'm going down the line, I'm going down the line with every guy, every guy. And I get to Edney, and he just made the shot. And I say, Edney, Edney! I'm screaming, Edney! That fourth foul wasn't very good. You know, I went on down like, what are you going to say about that? You got to be kidding. <laughs> but boy, we got our focus back. And that was my whole intent to get our focus back. And we came out and played Mississippi State. We were ahead 63 to 29. And then we played Connecticut, and we were up 15 with two minutes to go. And we got our focus back, beat Oklahoma State by 11, and beat Arkansas by 11. So needless so, to say, it's no party in that night. No. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 they had never heard me. I mean, they, they hadn't heard me like that, screaming and yelling and after them, after them hard. Well, we won. We lost. I wouldn't have done that. But, uh, but we got. I was at Rhode Island, and, and we had a we we had a good team. We were only twenty and eight, and twenty three and eight, and and we're going to the tournament. We play in our conference during we our first game. In the second game, we'd played Xavier, and they're 10, 15 times better than we are. We beat them at home by one. They get us in that tournament, and they just spank us. So I give them a couple of days off, and then we come back. And I said, all right, fellas, on the line. I said, that last performance is very unacceptable. Unacceptable, we're running. And I don't do that very often, but I did it, but I got my point across. And we went on, and we came within a bad call going to Final Four at Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. It was a, we just, we beat Kansas, who was 37-1 and one and ranked number one 
They were the number one team in the country and the number one team of the number one seeds, they were the number one seed. And we beat them in the second round in Oklahoma City and uh, almost went to Final Four. But that's my method, kind of. Yeah. As far as coaching and, and the industry as a whole, how, do, how, do, how does one get used to taking a job that seemingly, ultimately, you know that it's probably not going to end well? Because as you mentioned before, if you don't have the, the personnel, the players, you could be the best coach there is, but you, you, you might not well, stand a It's more a important who you work for than where you work. And I went to, I went, uh, I was assistant at UCLA under Gary Cunningham two years after Coach Wooden quit. And I'm 40 years old. I got three sons who were all born in Southern California. I'd watch Denny Crum leave UCLA and go to Louisville. I watched Frank Arnold leave UCLA and go to BYU. But someone wanted me to be their head basketball coach. Only, at that time, there was probably only 300 jobs in the country. Wanted me to be a Division I head basketball coach at Pepperdine. And I wanted to stay in Southern California. So I took it. And we won the league five times the first nine years I was there. And you know what? They liked me. It's a very platonic, very friendly, very nice, fabulous people. Best place I ever worked, without a doubt, un unequivocally. Mm. And they liked you. Where you go to UCLA in Georgia, you know, you're, 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 you're a rent-a-coach. They rent you as long as they need you, and as long as they don't need you, they get rid of you. Now, they liked me at Rhode Island, and I might have made a mistake leaving Rhode Island, probably did, but they offered me a, a, a tremendous amount of money at Georgia, and, and, and I did it for money, which was a mistake, but I had a great run at Georgia. Great run, great friends, great players uh, that I'm really, really, really close with now. So in the end, it turned out really good. I, I second-guessed myself a lot because Rhode Island was so good to me, and they liked you. So I was at two places where they liked you and two places where they, you know. But big-time jobs don't, you know, they don't like you very, you know. I, no loyalty. I, I tell coaches a lot, you better find, you know, you better be supportive. I mean, you can count on one or two hands how many coaches have been in their position long longevity. It's a three- to six-, seven-year process, and then, you, you know, you're lucky if you don't leave or get fired. But you look, almost every guy that leaves this profession leaves it negatively. Yes. It's, it's very difficult to stay in the job a long period of time. So I know you had a lot of teachings from Coach Wooden. But besides those teachings, and maybe it's a byproduct of that, describe the doggedness that it takes to be a great coach if doggedness is, you know, the, is the right word you know i i really feel that to be a great coach you got to be an attractor you got to attract people to you especially players 
And I feel that I've always been an attractor. I've always, everywhere I've gone, I've had very outstanding players. I've had tremendous assistance, which helps. <laughs> but I think ultimately they come because of you. Gone to UCLA because it was UCLA. Went to Pepperdine because of me. Went to Rhode Island because of me, but they went to Georgia because it was Georgia. And and uh, but I've always been an attractor, and that's that's one. And and I learned a great great system of basketball. And I think through teaching English, being in front of the classroom, I used to snivel like a little rat when my principal made me do lesson plans. And I had to hand them in. I learned from John Wooden to make your lesson plan for your practice meticulously to the minute. One of the great lessons I've ever learned in my life. Plan your practice. And I learned from John Wooden how to practice. And I studied and I learned. And I was under Gary Cunningham who was his assistant. And I just you know, I always said, you know, the Lord took care of me because He never He made me made me be prepared. And I always talk of in my speaking about practice, plan, prepare, and then you got to perform because I'm going to plan you, I'm going to practice you, and I'm going to prepare you, and then I'm done. I'm going to sit down and watch a game. That's what people say. I don't see you up jumping around acting like a crazy maniac. I said I've done my job. My job's I I, I work from three to five thirty. My job's over. How uh, many times I'm going to out-coach somebody on the field? That's way overblown. You out-coach people 3 to 5.30 every day, not when the game starts. You might make a good call. and I, I've made some calls I second-guess myself on, but I made some calls that, are, that were great calls. But most of it over a long period of time. And uh, But I, I really... I really think that you need to have knowledge of the game. You need methods of how to teach. You need undying motivation. And I used to give my team a moment of motivation every day. Every day. I got piles and piles of things, inch by inch, life's a sense. Yard by yard, life is hard. What is a great competitor? A great competitor has a real love of a hard battle. I mean, it goes on, and I can go on and on and on and on. But that's what I mean. And you got to have great discipline. Those are the four basic things you need to be a great teacher. And I learned that being an elementary junior high school, a junior high school teacher and a teacher at uh, ninth grade, 10th grade English at Morningside High School. People learn 10% when they hear you speak, 20% when they see it done, and 70% when they do it. And the laws of learning are explanation, demonstration, correction, and repetition. So I learned that, all that from Wooden, all that from Wooden. And I studied it. And, I'm, and when you say, and I say study it, what I mean is I don't need a sheet of paper. I don't need a clipboard out there to look and say, well, what do I do when I have to explain, you know. I learned it. I learned to take it from learning it to, to in my mind and reacting 
etc. What is discipline? To me, discipline is what you do for someone, not to someone. And it's a matter of, you know, you know, Lamar Odom was was terrific, terrific. He loved the loved the play. So smart, he knew knew how to play the game of basketball. Well, you know, he was he he was late one time, missed practice once, but that's the only time. So I said, all right, Lamar, you know, you've been good. I'll give you this one. I'll give you this one. Just practice anyway, you know. But uh, you know. Other times they back you in a wall and you have to really do something. But I like to take care of my own discipline. I don't want you to know, I don't want anybody to know it's on the floor I'm running you till you drop or whatever I need to do. I want to handle my own. I don't want people to know about it. And I'm different. I don't want to punish my team for what you did by saying, hey, you can't play. You can't play, it hurts our team, it hurts our fans, it hurts our students, it hurts our faculty, it hurts our school, it hurts our team, it hurts everything. So you got to think about what you do. And uh, I want to punish you and discipline you and run you and run you, get you up five in the morning and run you, but I'm going to play you because I don't want you to hurt my team. But that's a stupid, you know, that's, that's the way I think. Uh, other people don't think that way. You mentioned the laws of learning. So it's, it's a law. And if that's the case with certain students that just, for whatever reason, they're not grasping the, the material. Why, why aren't the teachers being taught these laws of learning so they could share that with the students and to help them grasp the material? My complaint about coaches today, they've never, they're not teachers. You are just a teacher of basketball. The court is an extension of the classroom. You must have what I just told you. And so many guys don't. I had Romar and I had Lorenzo Romar and Mark Godfrey. Neither one of them ever taught a class in the classroom. Had no idea how to teach. So that's an advantage. Oh, that was a that's tremendous advantage to me. I taught four years of junior high school, nine years of high school, six years as an assistant coach, nine years as a head coach at Pepperdine High School, and then I got the UCLA job. I was ready for that assignment because that's a big time assignment. Yeah. You also mentioned being attractive, attractiveness, and obviously we know the law of attraction. That 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 can be a law as well. You went to the open practice for for John Wooden, and. Next thing you know, he's, he's watching you, Coach. Why did you feel that he was attracted to, to you as a young coach? Well, he wasn't really doing? attracted to me. He was coming to watch a player I had played. Okay. <laughs> he wasn't, didn't come to watch me coach. No, you got it wrong. He, he came to recruit what okay. he was doing. I thought he might but have heard the, about but, you and the no, things no, no, that you no. were doing. Then the next summer, I became the director of the John Wooden basketball camp, and I spent a lot of time with him, a lot of time, six six camps a week, a summer, you know, five days a week, three meals a day, and uh, uh, I got a doctor's degree from him in coaching. Yeah. 
So since coaching is, is so stressful, how did you learn to, to relax? How, 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 how do you cope with all the stress of, that comes with well, coaching? I wonder I made it, it's a wonder I made it through Pepperdine without them smashing me upside the head because I was kind of wild and jumped around. It was a, and it's a very, very laid back kind of school, you know, and I was kind of hyper for them, but they, they and I grew into the job grew into the job and, and got to the point where and I'm not sure there's not too many coaches in the country don't embarrass themselves once or twice a year because uh, uh, it is stressful it is hard it's very very difficult and, and uh, you know Ben Howland the UCLA coach used to call me every week he said you're the only one I can talk to because you understand how hard this job is and and I, I, I embraced John Wooden. I wanted him around. I wanted him to be there. I wrote a book called Embracing the Legend, talking about him and our season and me, you know, my, and things. So I didn't let him ever influence me because uh, uh, I wanted him. He was my teacher, my mentor, my advisor, and I'm just, you know, following him. I looked at him after, you know, I get the UCLA job or I get the Pepperdine job and he'd retire, he, he, he had retired six years before, but I looked at him and I said, well, for 28 years he did this and he had this kind of success. Why should I change anything? So I follow him. You know, I turned on the TV the other day and Gino Ariyama of the women's team is running my offense, all my plays. Everything we run, he's running it with the women's national team over in Brazil. I'm sitting there, my look at that, look at that, look at that. And so my guys, I got assistants everywhere, and they're texting me, calling. Did you see Gino running that? What is he doing? Where'd he get that? Do you know him? You know? <laughs> stuff like that. So I just think the John Wooden system is not the only way to play just the best. I thought our offense is not the only offense in the world just the best. But again, you don't need to run that if you don't turn the ball over and you play good defense and you're fundamentally very, very sound. And, and uh, So winning helped with the stress? I loved October 15th to December 1st where we played no games. It was my favorite time of the year. When the game starts, there's so much pressure on the players and the coaches and the coaches, that uh, it takes a lot of the fun out of it. But the fun part is competing, seeing if you can put your, what you're doing into play against what he's doing, you know, and if you got equal talent, how are you going to turn out? And, you know, Lute Olson and I would play a game, there might have been seven, eight, nine pros on the floor at one time. And it was just absolutely fantastic competition. I mean, the games were such a high level, it was incredible. And when my guys get together now, they always talk about the Arizona games because they were just played at such a high level competitively. And, and you want to play, you want to play the best, and you want to be your best against the best. And when you win a national championship, you're playing your best, you're reaching the pinnacle of everything that you've worked for in your life. You know, you re, you know you, as a coach, you reach a pinnacle of your profession. 
and there can be no more sat greater satisfaction than that. And uh, during your career, did you ever, per se, disrupt yourself or any ways of thinking that you might have had that you had to change? Any paradigms that you had to change? You know, it's funny. I'm at Pepperdine. And we had a swimming water polo coach by the name of Rick Rowland. Just a good guy. And I knew him, but I didn't really know him very well. I mean, we weren't, we didn't go out to dinner together, and we're just on the same staff and say hello, how are you, how's your family, you know, all that kind of stuff, but nothing personal. But every single time I had a tough patch, a tough road, maybe lose a couple or lose a road, you know, lose some games. I'd come in the next morning and we had a little box, you got your mail in, I got my box and there's a note from Rick Rowland. He says, stick with your philosophy, don't change anything. Go back to your basics. So I'd go back to my first day of practice, my basics and and just, you could hit me over the head with 10 two by fours, you couldn't change my philosophy. You can't change me. To, Wow. My assistants used to come in and say, look at his play, this is great, and put it up. I said, let me see it, and put it up on one. Hey, when you get your job, run that. But mm -hmm. this is what we're doing today. I got my lesson plans out in my garage in storage from my first practice in 1969 as a head basketball coach. I got my practice plan that I can show you. And I can go down in, in my cabinet right here and get about the last five years practice plans I had. Wow. I got every practice plan I've ever had, I still have. And you just stay consistent. Mm -hmm. What else do you do well? <laughs> you know, I've always thought that, that, that it's very difficult for someone to be outstanding at two different professions. John Madden, great football coach, and in his own characteristic way became a great analyst on television. Troy Aikman. Uh, but there are not a lot of guys like that. Not a lot of guys like that. Vin Scully won, you know, one thing. Uh, Tommy Lasorda, great manager, uh, you know. So being, being, running 30 years of basketball camp, being a teacher for 13 years in junior high and high school and in front of a classroom. You ever been in front of a classroom of students? What if you're, what if you're teaching an honors English class? <laughs> and these kids, uh, they're not smart. They're really smart. Yeah. And I've always said you can fool a fool and you can con a con, but you can never kid a kid. Never. They know whether you're real, whether you're phony, whether you're BSM, they, you can't do that. So you better be on your game and you better be practice planned and prepared and you better be ready or they'll, they'll, they'll nail you to the cross. It's very difficult to teach and hold momentum and hold discipline and be motiv motivating your students. Now I'm a different teacher. If, if, if I got a guy getting a D, I feel responsible. I think it's my fault that I failed. 
I've talked to a lot of teachers. And, hey, if he gets a D, he gets a D. There's nothing I can do about it. He's not motivated. He don't want to do his work. But I'm different. If you fail, I fail. And I'm going to bust my, I'm going to bust everything I had to make sure you don't fail my class. I'll spend hours with you, come in before class, stay after class. I don't care what I do. I'm going to make sure you don't fail my class. That's just, that's just me. I'm different. Yeah. I get on you when you win, and I praise you when we lose. Yeah. I, but I, I point out your mistakes and I say, hey, we need to get better for this stuff. You always work on your weaknesses, too, to your strengths, one. So that leads me to my next question. But before I say that question, if only everyone had your, your thought process relative to, to teaching, um, obviously it would be a, a better place. But so talking about the weaknesses, would you say that you're still growing to this day? When you stop learning, you stop existing. John Wooden, uh, uh, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Mm -hmm. John Wooden. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I always said when I reach a certain age, I'm going to eat anything I want to eat. I'll get fat. I don't care about anything. But you know what I do? I watch what I eat. I work out religiously. Uh, uh, I just can't quit learning. You know, I play golf a lot. And I want to know everything. Every guy in the world knows about golf. I want to know it. And, and, and that's my problem. I, I put too much in my mind because you got to free your mind to play golf. You got to free your mind to play basketball. You know, you can't have, you can't have the parents talking to the kid. And I always tell the parents, hey, love them. Talk to me about their academics, about their life, about where they live, what they're, but let me coach your son. You love him and do everything, but let me coach him. And uh, I always thought that was very important. And and, uh, and that's just the, kind of the way I am. I just, uh, it's a tough business. But, you know, I, I don't think, I'll tell you what happened. We won the national championship. You know, I've, I speak to booster groups. I've been teaching class. I've been 30 years at camps. I think I can speak. Well, I got offered a chance to give 10 speeches at big money to 1,500, to 900, to 1,000. Whoa. So my son found this guy downtown. It's called, his name is Gary Hankins. He runs a company called Pygmalion. And he's a speaking teacher. So I hired him. And he tore me down like you can't believe. He made, I thought I was the worst speaker that ever lived. And then he hit me, hit rock bottom. And then he built me back up. Because of told habits? Me how, or? Told me how to, how to speak. He taught me how to speak. I was just randomly speaking with no thought process, with no, you know, you have a, a joke and you have a, 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 a tale, it might be a tale, it might be, but it's an axiom, it's a sharp thing before every topic that you get, you're talking about. 
So if I'm going to speak to a group, I'll think of four things I want to talk about. And I never use notes. And I, you know, I'll, I maybe write them all down, but then I'll just, you know, you don't have to give it all. But I want to think of the joke, and I want to think of the axiom, and then I want to talk about attitude. And then I'll tell a joke, and I'll tell the axiom. I want to talk about pride, insatiable pride. So, you know, uh, uh, my number one is communication, costume, you know, challenge, choices. Those are the, you know, before each one of them, I'll give you a little... And so he built me up to where I, I become pretty good. Yes. Yeah. Ask my wife, because you know we only been married four and a half years, and she never heard me, and and she's been a couple times, and she just blown uh, away. I tell her you give A speeches, you give B speeches, sometimes you even give C speeches. Man. You know, some days you're on, some days you're off, some days your golf game is you play good, you play bad, you play okay. But I always want to be consistent, so I really work at it. I practice, plan, and prepare. And so I've become a pretty good speaker, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I'm good at anything else. And it's speaking because I've had a lot of experience in front of groups, in front of, you know, you kind of segue into it. And I was lucky enough to f find Gary Hankins and 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 make me a speaker and and uh, but I'm just a you know basketball coach and I can speak a little bit. That's about all I can do. I'm not really talented in any other any other capacity. Oh, you need to be. You talked about freeing your mind and learning. Well, I'm gonna clog your mind a, a little bit more on every episode of Vent with Trent the Gent. I give um, uh, some type of momentum of my appreciation. So I got your Yogi Berra book, oh, which look. has all his yeah. um, Yogi-isms in them. So hopefully um, maybe you can use some of those when you're out there. I absolutely will use them. I mean, I, uh, everything I've ever learned is from somebody else. Yes. You know, people say, where'd you get that? Well, I learned it from somebody. <laughs> I learned it from you. I learned it from this. I learned. And uh, you know what? It's so funny. I, I still... I still pick up things. I've got a book that thick of motivational things that I use, have used over the years. And uh, every one of my assistants have it. They've all copied everything I've ever done, which is what you're supposed to do. And uh, you know, I, I, I'm in a mode now where I just want to give back. I do a lot of work with the American Cancer Society through Coaches Versus Cancer. In fact, I'm going to D.C. in two weeks and speak to Congress to see our congressman about more funds for co for cancer research. Norm Stewart got cancer 17 years ago and beat it and got out and started Coaches versus Cancer. We had big golf tournaments all over the country and and where cancer was to where it is now is a huge difference. My wife's husband, first husband, before he died, had a brain tumor. Well, they're coming to find out now you can inject uh, the penicillin, uh, polio vaccine, and, and it's worked on some people and saved some lives. And she, we're sitting there watching it on 60 Minutes, and she just went crazy. She said, gosh, we had that. My husband wouldn't have died. And... Uh, 
So I've seen it. I've seen an accident. One of the greatest things I've ever done happened this year. They called me and they brought me back to Houston and I coached cancer survivors in a little game. Well, they can't play. You know, one guy had a had a iron leg and three girls were in three girls were in it. One was in treatment taking chemo. But Infinity sponsored it and they made lockers and had their name on it and shoes and they took them to the final four for the whole week. Wow. And we got to go out on the floor of the NRG arena where the final four is played and play a little game. Well, and I awesome. coached it's most heartwarming. I met these people, they're t 21 to 35. They're not kids, but they're cancer survivors. And they text me, they email me now, we keep in communication. And it's one of the most heartwarming things I've ever done. So that's my life now. I want to give back. I give back. And uh, Mark Godfrey has me down three or four times a year to North Carolina State. And uh, I coach him. I don't do anything. I just coach him. I make sure he, run, he runs everything we run. And he wants me to watch it and, you know, give him some thoughts and ideas. And I, I you know, Quite frankly, he just takes care of me, takes care of the old guy, which is really nice. And uh, I do that, and I speak, and and my wife and I travel a little bit, and and uh, and uh, life's good. Life's good. I don't charge people anything, and you know I give a lot of basketball lessons, and I don't try. I can't charge people. I just can't do that. I could have a big business if I wanted it teaching young people basketball, but I can't charge them. I, I, that's, I just can't do that. I see people s charge $125 for an autograph, and I just, just <laughs> goes against my old school philosophy. Let's um, wrap up. I know I've taken quite a bit of your time, but every episode we always do a fill in the blank just to see what might be said. So I'm going to read off a couple of words and then you'll fill in the blank. Okay. Okay. Don't stop blank. Don't stop learning. Figured you were going to say that. When you stop learning, you're through. You can blank. You can do almost anything you want to do if you have the proper attitude. Your attitude is the key to everything that you do in life. Uh, 90% of the things that happen, uh, you know, all the things that ever happen to you, 90% of the time it's your attitude that, re that how you react to that situation. And I think attitude probably becomes the number one. I love to go to a restaurant and have a waiter, waiter or waitress and see what their attitude's like, you know. And because, and, uh, you know, some people love their jobs and some people hate their jobs and your attitude separates you. Conversations are blank. Are instrumental. Because I don't think anybody can be a success unless you, you have the ability to communicate your thoughts and ideas to others. So with that, Coach, I want to thank you for communicating and having the conversation with me today and for the listeners. And as far as I'm concerned, You've always blessed me for the five years that I've known you, speaking to my um, youth teams, to granting me this conversation today. So I'm forever grateful for that and, and just thank you 
a million for your time today. It's my pleasure. Well, Venters, we are four episodes in, and I trust that you are enjoying yourselves just as much as I am. I'm committed to the growth and development of Vent with Trent the Gent, regardless of listenership or reviews. However, reviews are the primary way I will improve. And secondly, knowing that listenership is growing will only challenge me to satisfy you even more. That said, hit me up at ventwithtrentthegent at gmail.com to let me know what topics and who you would like to hear from. Swing for the fences, because I know I am.